You're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is July 5th, 2019. On the podcast today, we discuss President Trump's recent interaction with Kim Jong-un and their recent meeting and walk through the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. We also discuss the G20 summit, the continued impact of sanction against Iran, as well as recent elections within Turkey and how they can be an indicator for the future direction of that country. At this time, I'll pass it over to Rachel Washburn. Sir, since the uh, latest summit in Hanoi between President Trump and Kim, uh, we haven't been hearing a lot about North Korea uh, until there was a, a somewhat surprise visit where the president actually entered North Korea meeting at the DMZ. Um, pretty significant visuals and symbology there. Just want to hear your thoughts on where you think the negotiations denuclearization is uh, with North Korea. Well, well thanks, Rachel. And um, let me tell you, you know, I'm not surprised at all by President Trump's taking advantage of uh, his presence at the G20 and then uh, going to visit both U.S. troops in South Korea and then President Moon Jae-in, and then while there, spontaneously reaching out to Kim Jong-un and say, you know, and extend an offer to, to meet at the DMZ. I'm okay with that. And I need to tell you, you know, the spontaneity is one thing. I think that's uh, to be applauded. Let's be frank, there was nothing of substance that was accomplished. But if you can call the extenuation of a personal relationship in some way, irrespective of who that other individual is, a good thing, then the president accomplished a good thing diplomatically by reaching out and shaking the hand of the the chairman of the North Korean Communist Party. And also, this is the first time the president of the United States has gone to North Korea, albeit, you know, a little more than 20 steps. Again, very, very symbolic. And there are some challenges associated with that. But for the most part, I look at this and I go, yeah, I'm not surprised. But let's scratch below the surface and try to see what was accomplished. And the answer was nothing, again, other than a continuation of a relationship. The challenge, on one hand, the challenge is this validates, you know, the president's visit to North Korea. There's no other way to, to paint this thing. Validates Kim. It's a recognition, in air quotes, of the Kim regime, which has been in place for over 70 years, and the United States has never recognized North Korea. So this puts Kim in a, you know, elevates Kim and his posture diplomatically in a way that has not been done by a president before. And again, Kim is not a laudable character, and so we should go slowly about this. I mean, kind of progress slowly in terms of our embrace of this. But our, our criticism needs to be muted a little bit because what the president really, President Trump really accomplished was distancing Beijing's engagement with policies in Pyongyang. If you'll recall, she was in North Korea the very first time that he'd been to North Korea just about a month ago, again, validating Kim's position and completely validating Xi's position as the benefactor of everything that takes place in North Korea. But now you've got the president of the United States usurping that from Xi. I think that's a good thing. It pushes China in the corner of a little bit. But again, let's not overstate that. Any solution to what takes place in Pyongyang long term is going to go through Beijing and they must be a part of what, what um, happens going forward. So this quick visit to North Korea, I thought, was positive. It was more show than go. 
There's an element of uh, symbolism associated with it, but that's okay. We just need to be cautious about how we applaud it. And we also need to be cautious about how we criticize it based on everything we know. So back to you. Well, sir, just before the meeting, you had mentioned uh, the G20 summit. It's relatively uneventful um, given all the heightened tensions around the summit. What is your view on how the G20 played out and, and what we should take away from that? Yeah, I really would demur to Peter's comments about the G20, but there are several things that I would mention that I think loomed large, and sadly, they weren't addressed in what I would call a very fulsome way. One is, you know, we didn't we didn't get much in terms of insights in terms of a deal that the United States might strike with China as a result of the G20. I was hoping that we might be able to see a little bit more in terms of the prospects of that moving forward. The next thing is, like with most G20s, I think if you establish low expectations, um, not surprisingly, you'll meet them. And I think that's what happened in this G G20 event as well. It was kind of a yawner. And then the third thing, I think in many cases, when you assemble the world's 20 greatest economies, not only do you have an opportunity to move the ball along that economic element of power, but it also gives you an opportunity to open the door in other areas as well. And I think in this particular case, look, the existential nature of our cyber capabilities and nefarious activities that take place online as a matter of routine, the fact that the cyber domain of war is ungoverned is incredibly uh, unnerving. It exists. It's a reality. All the other domains of war have been governed and the cyber domain of war is not. And I've argued for years that when you can assemble this type of talent and the stakeholders that are in the room should have on the agenda some discussion of how you put governance around activities online. And we just never do that. Uh, So again, I think this was a swing and a miss. I was hopeful that that would happen. It certainly was not part of any published agenda, but like anything else, you can get together and you can always raise a hand and say, I've got something else I'd like to address. And you can hang it out there and you can then bring it forward for either further discussions offline, or at least you can make it part of the the official record of that meeting. It was not done. I find that disappointing, but more than disappointing, it allows us to continue to be concerned about, about, about nefarious activities online yet do nothing about it. And um, our diplomatic efforts need to address this, and it needs to be an agenda topic that sadly was not addressed in this particular G20. Peter, do you want to add anything? Yes, Peter, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, some of the positives came out of this G20 where, you know, we're going to continue to talk with China about trade, yet at the same time we keep bringing up Huawei as a national security threat. I think that national security threat is real, but once again, we don't seem to be kind of facing that reality. We've got to address it. We've got to talk about these things holistically. We can't say, hey, we want trade deals, but hey, we're also going to treat Huawei, Huawei as a national security threat. They can't be independent. And like you said, we probably missed an opportunity to really put cyber and how the G20 is going to deal with it on the map. Those would be really important, I think, to companies, to industries, um, in fact, probably even to countries going forward. So maybe it's something down the road we see. 
but we everywhere we're looking now, we see more and more of this crossing of cyber and business and countries have to take notice and the G20 would have been a great forum. You know, Peter, let, let me uh, jump on that just real quickly. The, the real challenge I see is that many would argue that there are bad actors in the cyber domain that need to be addressed. Their activities need to be limited. And if there is a form of punishment, there should be punishment. But that is kind of what I would call a strategy of the eaches. You've got Huawei as a bad actor. You've got Lenovo as a bad actor. You've got ZTE as a bad actor. And then you could often say, as a result of those bad actors, now we have unfair competition relative to Ericsson or Samsung or the other providers. What you said is so incredibly important is that the cyber domain needs to be addressed holistically and not individually in terms of those that are participating online in a way that needs to be governed or at least measured. So you're exactly right. I think we would agree completely that the G20 missed this great opportunity. It's timely. It's pertinent. The downsides of not addressing it are dramatic and it needs to be elevated. It needs to be addressed and action needs to be taken that's discernible, measurable, timely, and it needs to start as soon as possible. And it just didn't happen on this one. Yeah, I think those are all great points. Sir, if we can pivot to um, some very relevant news we've stayed in front of for about two months now, keeping our clients apprised as the situation develops um, is Iran. So this past week, Iran announced that they have exceeded uranium enrichment levels uh, that were prescribed in the JCPOA. We're seeing Israel um, claim that they are in a very defensive posture, expecting military aggression from Iran in the near future. Uh, we see more troop and equipment movements to the, uh, to the region by the U.S. military. What is your view on escalating rhetoric um, and potential rights intentions. I think what we're seeing in that part of the world, uh, especially in terms of Iran's very boisterous, very virulent uh, voice that you routinely hear, is that sanctions are working. That's the bottom line. There is a tremendous amount of pain that the mullahs are feeling in Tehran, and uh, the United States should be applauded for its vigilance leading this international coalition to really make the Iranian regime suffer. Now, the inevitable question then becomes, to what effect? What is the United States? What are the international partners that are still holding fast? What is the desired end state here? And I think for the most part, it's not regime change. I mean, you may hear our national security advisor talk about changing out that, uh, you know, the heinous regime that's existed in Tehran for over 30 years. But the real issue is we've got to modify. This is all about nukes. We've got to modify the behavior of the Iranian regime in terms of its desire to achieve a nuclear capability and to keep it completely within accepted norms of inspections and global community engagement, IAEA certifications, etc. Clearly, this effort by the administration of maximum pressure is working. It is inarguable that it is achieving a result that is applying a level of pain to the regime that has not been seen before. Added on top of that, the fact the United States has come forward and designated the IRGC as a terrorist organization. Normally, 
state organizations are not designated terrorist organizations, and the IRGC is, because essentially the IRGC is an all-of-government agency. It exists in their economic system. It exists in their, in their mosques. It exists in their government. It exists in their military. It exists in their educational system. It exists in their trade policies. It exists in their regional outreach, etc. So this is an incredibly uh, very broad, almost ecumenical designation by the United States that the IRGC is an incredibly bad actor. That is to say, Iran, you across the board are a bad actor and we're everything that follows as a result of the designation of Iran as a terrorist state is extremely painful. So the Iranians now are being very, very boisterous because they're feeling the pain and they're going to react. It's like when you push you push a balloon, it's you know, it'll indent at one location and it'll expand at another. So there has to be on the part of the United States and international partners the inevitable asymmetric response that's going to occur. Well, that's what's happened with a couple of tankers. A few tankers have been attacked in the Straits of Hormuz. They shot down a U.S. drone. Those moves are not surprising at all, and we can expect more of those coming up. But the Iranian regime is almost trying to stick a gun to the head of the international community and say, look, the Jikpoa paid us billions of dollars so that we could produce nukes on some schedule that we were going to, uh, you know, eliminate and skirt around the rules anyway. So now the international community, or at least the United States, has said, okay, we're not going to pay you money to produce nukes. We're going to try to strangle you economically and see how that allows you to produce nukes. So the consequence of that is now Iran is saying we're producing, we're enriching uranium at a faster clip than we have before. That, again, should not be surprising. So the United States has to be able to keep the international community, and I'm assuming that that international community is going to hold fast based on Iranian bad behavior. I could be proven wrong, but history tells us that economic sanctions usually do not achieve the intended result. These sanctions are moving in the direction of achieving an intended result of, cause, of causing an enormous amount of pain economically to the regime in Tehran that will be felt down into the population within Iran, which could then cause challenges with governance in Tehran that if it results in regime change, that is a stretch and that's not on the agenda in my mind. But what is, is direct causal behavior that reduces their ability to produce enriched uranium and get closer to their desired end state of having a nuclear capability, as well as developing the missiles to deliver those. And what's interesting, the upside of all of this is the Iranian regime supports activities in Pyongyang with about $2 billion or so a year. Now, my numbers may be wrong, but that linkage is known and is clear. And so the pressure that's being felt in Tehran has the benefit of, of providing pressure and increasing the sanction results in Pyongyang as well. So there's no activity that's taking place that's not in some way uh, causally linked, uh, both on the peninsula in Korea and in the Middle East. 
Israel's preparation is not surprising at all. Israel is concerned since they have no time, they have no space that they can afford to give up if they get it wrong. So Israel always maintains an incredible heightened state of military preparedness for what could be a zero warning type of a, type of an engagement, which means short fuse on indicators puts Israel at risk. Israel has to be in a position to respond instantaneously. That's a general kind of 24-7 state of affairs in Israel. But the United States uh, deployment of additional assets enhances Israel's ability to be able to withstand a blow and to respond in a way that does not put them at risk. So I, that's, that's how I see what's taking place right now in that part of the world. Back to you. Thanks, Ryder. Again, that was a great overview of what's going on there. I think the market is finally starting to realize that the risk of escalation is higher than people thought, whether it's a misstep or a purposeful you know, pushing of the envelope by the Iranians, that risk seems real. Um, you know, the fact that Israel may have to act, you know, not preemptively, but certainly to protect themselves aggressively is starting to be felt in the market. I think what we're going to see is, for now, that continues to help Treasury yields. So the Treasury market's going to remain pretty well bid as a flight to safety trade is kind of there. Having said that, with the 10-year Treasury already around 1.95% yield, it doesn't have a lot to gain from that. Weirdly, and I think it actually does make sense, though it is a bit strange, equity markets, I think, are a little bit immune to this. On Tuesday of this week, we saw some announcements about uh, the vice president canceling an event. We saw the Israeli headlines hit, and the stock market sold off briefly, but then rebounded. And I think unless this is going to become a very, you know, big war across multiple nations, it is really viewed as mostly impacting the oil markets and not really getting above and beyond that. And so it's not really disrupting global trade. Um, so much of the markets right now are view, are being uh, priced by central banks that are very aggressive in terms of their dovishness, which is allowing markets to ignore this. I think we're going to see stocks continue to do well. We've been recommending to clients to be, be buying energy stocks and energy bonds. We think they're already kind of lagged the market, so there's a chance to outperform. And if we do get this escalation, many of those companies should be profiting from this. Also starting to take a look at aerospace and defense names who may benefit depending on how this um, escalation plays out, what equipment is used, what will need to be replaced. So I think there's going to be opportunities for the market in this. Um, and I am not particularly scared that it's going to have a big overall impact on the market. I think it will remain a relatively isolated event. Well, then to close out, it's been about a week since the uh, redo elections for the mayoralship in Istanbul. President Erdogan more or less demanded that there be uh, a redo of elections after his party lost the elections. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the redo elections showed an even uh, more dramatic loss for President Erdogan's party. Uh, sir, we've obviously talked about a lot about Turkey and the, the change of leadership style and a pivot from the West. You know, what are your thoughts on post-election on what this means for, for Erdogan and Turkey and uh, the relationship with the United States? I think Erdogan re remains um, a significantly powerful figure in the Mideast, certainly on our southern flank in NATO. And the challenge in Istanbul is truly, it's, it's an indication of how the tide might be changing. Um, I think what you're seeing in, in Istanbul is a pendulum swing 
reaction, kind of a visceral reaction to a consolidation of power, but I don't think it's a fundamental shift in terms of a challenge to Erdogan. I think more sig- more significant impact in that is probably in terms of how the markets have responded to that political and diplomatic change. Um, I would, And I'm going to defer to Peter to describe that. But in terms of military posture, Erdogan still dances with Putin. The United States has threatened not to ship F-35 uh, or sell F-35s to Turkey. F-16 parts are going to be minimized in terms of their ability or, or uh, Turkey's access. So there is a degrad- potential degradation to the military readiness, but I think the real impact is on the markets. And I'll turn it over to Peter to describe that. Yes. Yeah, so, so far, I think the market has actually really liked the change. I think people see it maybe as making progress, maybe them pulling back. A couple of weeks ago, we've talked about Turkey really as being that kind of below the radar screen sort of risk to markets that people weren't pricing it in. Um, but since these elections, we've seen the Turkish lira rebound. So it was almost as high as six at the um, late May. It's dropped to 562. That's an improvement. More importantly, they're on the bond front of things. Their 10-year yield is 8%. That's dropped to 7% in two weeks. So again, markets, I think, are taking some pressure off Turkey. They were just able to issue $2.25 billion of bonds last week. So, so far, markets are actually being very positive. They want to see change. I think it makes sense to see change. Our biggest real risk has been that Turkey was pulling further away from the West, more to the East. If these election results are enough to change policy there, that would be great. I think it would be you know, awesome. We would see a big rally there. It would make a lot of companies with business over there happier. Whether this change is permanent or it's going to drive a further wedge remains to be seen. I think, you know, in typical fashion, markets react very quickly. And now as the hangover hits, we're going to have to realize, are we right? And is this change positive and real? Or are we going to go right back to where it was a couple months ago? And we should be still concerned about losing Turkey to the east and the negative implications that would have for markets. Thank you, Peter, Rachel, and General Marks for your comments in this conversation. As we record this podcast right after Independence Day, Academy Securities wants to take a moment and thank our active duty military members, especially those who are serving in harm's way. We continue to be a nation at war with several great American patriots who gave the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our nation just last month. We thank all of those who have worked so diligently and those who have even paid for our freedom with their lives. America, while not perfect, is certainly the best place in the world to call home. Thank you so much to our listeners for taking the time today. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to sharing another installment of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast with you soon.